Well, please remain standing and turn with me, if you will, in God's Word, first to Matthew chapter 13. Uh, if you're able to put a finger in Jeremiah 32, that will be our main passage this morning. But first, Matthew 13, verse 44, if you're using uh, one of the Pew Bibles, uh, you'll find that on page 819. Beloved saints, all grass withers and fades away, but God's word is eternal and abiding and is perfect. Uh, Hear now the reading of it. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now turn with me, if you will, to Jeremiah chapter 32. Uh, It's a long chapter, but we're going to start by just reading the first eight verses uh, at this point. If you're using one of the church Bibles, you'll find that starting on page 660. Jeremiah 32, we'll start with just the first eight verses. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which is the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar at that time, The army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah. For Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him, saying, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am giving this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall capture it? Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans, but surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him face to face, and see eye to eye, and he shall take Zedekiah to Babylon, and there he shall remain until I visit him, declares the Lord. Though you fight against the Chaldeans, you shall not succeed. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Behold, Hanamel The son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you and say, Buy my field that is in Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then Hanamnel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard in accordance with the word of the Lord and said to me, Buy my field that is in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. And then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. This ends the reading of God's word at this time. Let us uh, seek God's blessing on our time in his word. O Lord, the heavens declare your glory, and the sky above proclaims your handiwork. Each day they pour out speech, and each night they reveal your knowledge. And yet it is here, your scriptures, your word, that we find perfection. For your scriptures, they revive the soul, they, they give wisdom to the simple, We find your precepts that rejoice the heart and your commandments that enlighten the eyes. And so your word is to be desired, even more than gold itself. Father, we ask that the words of my mouth, that the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. For you are our Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. You are our hope in whom we put our trust. Amen. You may be seated.
One thing I love about the Bible, something that I think uh, testifies to its divine origin, is how diverse it is. Uh, you have historical narratives, you have poetry, you, you have theological sections and teaching, and you have prophetic visions. You have severe warnings of judgment, and then you have miraculous and gracious rescues from destruction. In many ways, the scriptures are not what we're taught to expect from holy word, from holy books. Our world tends to think religious books are austere, detached, wise sayings. You ever notice in movies, somebody who's religious is always inhuman in how they talk. Now, but you be sure the Bible has wisdom, but it also has humor, has failure, has tragedy, has romance, and it has cousins buying fields from each other. You've got to love that. An entire chapter about cousins buying each other's field. As we come to Jeremiah 32, we have an entire chapter about Jeremiah purchasing his cousin Hanamel's, say that name five times real fast, uh, field from him. And you think, this is in the Bible? Out of all the things God could spend his time talking about, he devotes an entire chapter to buying a field. But that's how it is with God. As usual, he does the unexpected And he uses materials we would never expect him to use to create these amazing works of art. Jeremiah 31 was was intensely theological. Holding out the promise of the new covenant, something distinctly different and better than that old covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai. Jeremiah 32 is intended to illustrate for us what that new covenant looks like. Specifically, it's meant to help us understand how we see ourselves and how God sees us. My hope as we walk through this passage together is to really say this simple thing. When you are at your lowest and feel the most unlovable, it is then that you can most clearly see God's redeeming love. We, we are most able to see how great and spectacular his, his redeeming love is when we're at our lowest, when we're struggling the most. And my plan is really quite simple. It's, it's this. First, we want to walk through the story of the purchase of the field, see what happens, and then we want to wrestle with God's explanation of what it all means in the second half of the chapter. And so that's what we're going to do. The first few verses set the scene for us And things in Jerusalem are not good. Jeremiah is in prison because he has warned uh, Jerusalem about the coming disaster. And the king, Zedekiah, saw this as treasonous, as speaking against the land, against the nation, against his king. And so Jeremiah is locked up in the palace of the king in the court of the guard. But that's the least of his worries because outside the palace the city of Jerusalem is under siege. The Babylonians have taken many of its citizens into captivity and taken them off, but those who remain, they're under constant attack. The mightiest army in the world is wreaking havoc in Jerusalem 
buildings are either in rubble or they are in ashes. And Jeremiah is probably wondering if it's safer to be in prison. Maybe the best place to actually be is in prison. Or maybe it would have been better to be carried away into exile and at least live in relative security in Babylon. What would you choose? Sitting there day after day in your prison cell, listening to the sounds of battle, the cries of suffering, the carnage going on outside, feeling helpless and feeling hopeless. What would you expect? Probably not what comes next. God comes to Jeremiah and says that his cousin Hanamel will come and make a request for the redemption of his field in their hometown of Anathoth, a couple uh, miles away from Jerusalem. This goes back to Israel's laws of redemption uh, because God uh, had given Israel the land, the promised land. It was uh, his special gift to them. It was their inheritance. And so God put certain provisions into the law to make sure that they would never lose the land. For example, if you fell on hard times and you had to sell your property to pay your bills, uh, it was your relative's duty to buy it from you so that it did not pass out of your family. God also required that every seven years during the Jubilee that all property pass back to its uh, original proper owner. God even had provisions for people who died with no heir to inherit their property so that it didn't pass out of the family. It was a brother's job to marry his his deceased brother's widow and the first heir from that wedding, that union, would become the deceased uh, brother's heir who would inherit that land and carry it on in his name. The laws of redemption were there for the benefit of those who fell on hard times. The relatives who came in and did the redeeming and did the buying or, or, or the marrying, they weren't to receive any personal gain. That was not the point. It was to be a selfless act of service to those who were in hard times and suffering and even death. There was no other culture in history who had provisions like this. And this is what Hanamel is asking of Jeremiah. And by, by itself, the request makes sense. It's an important part of Israel's history. It's an important part of their heritage. Everyone would have understood what's going on. Well, obviously, Hanamel's having a hard time. It's Jeremiah as his closest cousin to come uh, his responsibility to buy the land. But what doesn't make sense is the timing. The land is under attack. Everything is in ruins. This, the, the entire land, not just this field, all the land is, is being stolen and occupied by a foreign army. It's like Hanamel's coming to Jeremiah and asking him to buy his car that's currently on fire or, or asking him to rearrange the deck chairs on a ship that's sinking. The timing is curious, and and it gets worse. You think about there's Jeremiah. He's in prison. He sort of has a lot on his mind right now. It's the sort of request that makes sense in a time of peace. But when it comes at this time, it seems to be the last thing they should be worrying about. 
But God warned Jeremiah that it would happen. He said, your cousin will come. This is what I want you to do. And so Jeremiah knows that it's, it's from the Lord. It's something he needs to do. And so Jeremiah weighs out the purchase price, 17 shekels of silver, according to verse 9, and he buys the field. But he does more than this. He, he signs the deed, and he places his seal on it. And, and the purchase, according to verse 10, is made uh, before witnesses to watch. And then he has Baruch, his trusted secretary, he's put it into a, a strong uh, stone uh, jar or vessel so that it would be protected for many years. It wouldn't disintegrate that there would be this record of this purchase for, for years to come. All of that is to say, Jeremiah was publicly binding himself to this piece of land. He didn't just quietly look at Hanamel and go, really? Okay, here's a few bucks. It's got to be worth more than a burning field is worth. Now, get lost. He pays the full price of redemption that you would expect in a time of peace for a field he probably doesn't even have access to, even if he was out of prison. And then God tells him why in verse 15. He's having him do all this. God says, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. God's saying, I'm not done with this land. I don't want you to let it pass out of uh, uh, your, your bloodlines, your families, your possessions. And yet Jeremiah is still baffled, and we can't blame him. But but let's read Jeremiah's response in verse 16 through 25. After I had given the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord, saying, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them. O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, great in counsel and mighty in deed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of men, rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. You have shown signs and wonders in the land of Egypt and to this day in Israel and among all mankind and have made a name for yourself as at this day. You brought your people, Israel, out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong and outstretched arm and with great terror. And you gave them this land which you swore to their fathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they entered and took possession of it, but they did not obey your voice or walk in your law. They did nothing of all you commanded them to do. Therefore you have made all this disaster come upon them. Behold, the siege mounds have come up to the city to take it, and because of the sword and famine and pestilence, the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans who are fighting against it. What you spoke has come to pass, and behold, you see it. Yet you, O Lord God, have said to me, buy the field for money and get witnesses, though the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans." You can feel Jeremiah's confusion. He knows who God is. God is mighty and powerful. He is wise and yet he is just. He is merciful. He's shown kindness in the deliverance of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. But Jeremiah also knows his people. They're disobedient. 
They're suffering right now the consequences of all their rebellion against God. Many are in exile, and those who remain are wondering every day, will this one be my last? And now God comes along and says, go redeem the field of your cousin and make sure you have witnesses. And it just sounds weird. When things were normal, God said, don't do normal things like get married and, and ex, 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 uh, trade and exchange things. And now that things are in absolute havoc, God's saying, do normal things like build houses, plant gardens, get married, and redeem property that is hosting a battle. When things were fine, we can't act normal. And now that our world is in absolute chaos, you want us to act Normal, like nothing's going on. Can you blame me if I'm a bit confused, God? It's funny, usually people try to make sense out of suffering. Jeremiah understands the suffering. He can't make sense out of blessing. He's looking at at all the rebellion, all their fighting against God. Why would you show us kindness at this point? we, We didn't listen. It's too late. Your judgment has already come. What he can't understand is why God wants him to invest in a land that has no hope for the future. Because isn't their inheritance lost? Isn't all hope gone? Hasn't that ship sailed? God's answer comes in verse 26 through 35, and it all begins with the question, is anything too hard for me? It's a rhetorical response. The implied answer is, no, nothing's too hard for you. And if that question sounds vaguely familiar, it's because it's the exact same question that God asked Sarah when he told her that she would have a son. You remember she laughed? And he says, why are you laughing? Is anything too hard for me? God had promised Abraham and Sarah that they would have his child that, that, and that many nations would come from this child. But he waited and he waited and he waited until Sarah was long after childbearing years before she had that child so that they would know that it was God who gave them the child. He did the impossible so that they would know that their blessings came not through ordinary means, but by the gracious hand of their God. That's just how he works. That's what he did in the days of Gideon in Judges 7. As Gideon and his army of 32,000 soldiers prepared for battle, God said, the people with you are too many. For me to give the Midianites into your hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hands have saved me. And so little by little, God sends away soldiers until only 300 out of the original 32,000 remain. Then God says, now we're ready for battle. And when they win, there would be no question who gave them the victory. Who can forget the famous showdown of of Elijah versus the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings chapter 18? 
said, well, we'll both cry out to our gods and we'll see. Who brings down fire from heaven to consume the altar? So the prophets of Baal go and they fail. And Elijah gets up and says, before I go, why don't you douse the wood with water? I do it another time. One more time. So the water is, is the wood soaked, the water's pulled up around the altar. So that when it catches on fire, there would be no question who had done it. When God delivers his people, he wants it to be clear that he has done what no other could do. It wasn't luck. It wasn't timing. And it certainly wasn't their own strength or their own righteousness. It was his love for them. And this is what he tells Jeremiah he's going to do. Yes, I gave my children over to the hands of the Babylonians. Yes, they are destroying the city and setting it on fire. Yes, the children of Israel have brought all this on their own heads. But does that mean all hope is lost? It might look that way. There might be no hope from your perspective, nothing that you can do. But is anything too hard for God? So what is he planning to do? Let's read the last few verses of this chapter, verses 36 through 44. Now therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city which you, uh, of which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety and they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant, and I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts, that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in all faithfulness, with all my heart and with all my soul. For thus says the Lord God, just as I have brought all this disaster upon this people, so will I bring upon them all the good that I promised them. Fields shall be bought in this land, of which you are saying, it is a desolation without man or beast. It's given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Fields shall be bought for money, and deeds shall be signed and sealed and witnessed in the land of Benjamin, in the places about Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah, in the cities of the hill country, in the cities of Shephelah, and in the cities of the Negeb. For I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. A day is coming when God will bring his exiles back. But he won't bring them back to a a land war-torn and ravaged by war. They won't have to sleep with one eye open. According to verse 37, when the time arrives for them to come home, they will dwell in safety. Once again, they will hear those most wonderful of words. You are my people, 
and I am your God. Right now is the time for them to figure out their identity, who they are. Are they exiles or are they heirs? Which is temporary and which is permanent? Which is their situation and which is their identity? And the only way to answer that question is to ask if they find their identity in what they do or in what God does for them. Their actions, what they have done, has led to exile. What God does will lead them to inheritance. For his children, he says, I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. The land that lies in ruin will again be built up and planted. With God, the exile will not have the final word. Though all the world around Jeremiah appears to be wasting away, God is preparing his people who are suffering for peace and for rest. They will return to the land of their inheritance and they will be buried there. The exile is temporary. It's not who they are. Even in death, they will possess their inheritance. And so God tells Jeremiah to buy a field in what appears to be the worst possible time in order to help his people see what he is doing. These battle scars are not permanent. Destruction must give way to a new day where growth takes place. Want will have to give way to abundance. Danger will have to give way to security. What makes this land valuable is not its intrinsic value, but what God is going to do with it. And so he tells Jeremiah to redeem a ruined field because God is willing to redeem a ruined people. You see, we are the field. (laughs) From our perspective, if we're honest, we don't have much to offer. We're rebellious, we're proud, we're stubborn, we fail over and over, we struggle to get our lives under control, we let those that we love down, worse, we hurt those we love the most, the most often. We fear the quiet hours of the night because it's then that we're forced to reckon with our own sin, our own failure, our own brokenness, and we wonder if God really knew. If he really knew everything, if he knew me, what hope would there be? And God says, have you read Jeremiah? I wrote a a whole chapter just for you. About Jeremiah buying his cousin's field. I'm in the business of redeeming lost causes. You are exactly the sort I invest myself in. But I wait. 
until all hope seems lost so that you might see clearly that it's I who did it. It's, it's when you're at your lowest and you feel most unlovable that you will be most able to see my love in my redemption. At any other time, you might think you accomplished it. At any other time, you might think you earned it. And you might miss my love. And that wouldn't be the truth. The truth is I have accomplished it. The truth is I have redeemed you. The truth is I have bought you at a price because I love you. But what was the price? It was certainly more than the 17 shekels of silver that this field cost Jeremiah. You, beloved, are worth far more than a field. If God was going to pay the redemption price... For you, he would have to pay it in full. And he'd have to do it before witnesses. Again, you have to love the Bible. As if one passage on buying a field weren't enough, it seems to be a repeating theme in Scripture. Among the parables Jesus told in Matthew's Gospel, one took up a single verse. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in a field which a man found and covered up Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys the field. Many see this verse as referring to what we're called to do. But in the context, it is telling how God will gather his people from throughout the earth. We need to be careful to never think that the kingdom of God is something we purchase. We are not the redeemers. No, God is the one who buys fields that appear worthless because he sees a treasure in them. But according to Matthew 13, the price of the field was all that he had. You see, you're the hidden treasure. You are what makes the field valuable. As the Bible loves to say, you are his treasured possession. But to buy you back from slavery to sin, it would cost him all he had. Even his own life. That's the price of redemption. He was willing to give up everything to redeem you. So he became man so that he could offer his life. And there in Jerusalem, where Jeremiah had sat So many years before, Jesus was condemned in the governor's palace. Before witnesses, he paid the price so that you would not be defined by the miseries of this life and this world. He purchased a heavenly inheritance for you. So if you belong to Jesus, you're not defined by your suffering, your situation, your context, You're not defined by what you have done for him. You are defined by what he has done for you. Praise the Lord that he made a prophet buy a field from his cousin. And he recorded it for us in Jeremiah 32. 
Praise God for the pictures he gives us of his love so that we might see it in such tangible ways. There is before us another such picture, but its message is the same. In the bread and the wine of the Lord's Supper, we see the price of redemption. Jesus gave all he had, even his own life, to purchase us. We see God's testimony that he was willing to pay the price, signed, sealed, and delivered. And so as our God invites us to the table this morning, this is what he wants us to see in the bread and the wine, his love for us. So I'd like to ask the elders, uh, Pastor Brian, to come forward that we might receive uh, this gift from our God this morning. Let us bow together in prayer. Our gracious God, your word is beautiful. It has glorious passages like this one about buying a cousin's field, a field under siege, a field in flames and ashes, a field that teaches us that you look past appearances and see what is possible through your grace, your power, and your love. We don't just see it in a field. We see our lives. We see what defines us, what makes us who we are. It's, it's not what we have accomplished, but what you have accomplished in us. And for this, we give you thanks and praise. We place our hope, our confidence in Jesus Christ alone. For he has paid the price. He is our redeemer. He is our hope. Amen.